Well, good morning, once again. This morning we begin a new sermon series in the book of Psalms, beginning at the beginning in Psalm 1. If you've ever opened a Bible, you will know that the book of Psalms is right at the heart of the Bible. But even more than that, the book of Psalms is and has been at the heart of God's people for centuries, ever since they were written. God's people have clung to the Psalms in all seasons and all times, in times of joy, in times of sorrow, in times of peace, in times of war, and every time in between. And perhaps most importantly, Jesus himself clung to the Psalms. We know that Jesus quoted Psalm 22 from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All throughout this room, I would expect uh, you all have different Psalms, different verses of different Psalms that have been meaningful to you, helpful to you, maybe is on your refrigerator right now as we speak. Or I'd imagine uh, in a church like this, there's uh, many Psalms that are familiar to us, sort of a uh, having grown up hearing them, let's do a little quiz for a, a minute. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not. Want. He makes me lie down in Green Psalm 46. You might know this. It's read often at times of national tragedy or of war. God is our and the very present help in Psalm 51 that David wrote in a time of great moral failure, massive, destructive moral failure. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a spirit within me. Psalm 150, let everything that has breath I wrote this in my clergy note this week in our Friday Toronto News that the book of Psalms is a treasure trove for God's people. It's a treasure trove of great truths about God great revelation about God, and also a treasure trove of profound and deep invitations to God, to worship God. But sometimes there's a temptation, I think, when it comes to the Psalms, and it's not a temptation that's unique to the Psalms. It's a temptation that we can fall into with any book of the Bible, which is that we only scratch the surface of it, of, of the treasure that it contains. We don't fully immerse ourselves in it. This Past week, I was on vacation with my family, and one day we were at an arcade um, with all the trappings of an arcade, bumper boats and go-karts and all the games you can imagine. And the, um, I, I learned, by the way, I'm still not very good at skee-ball, in case you were wondering, and I'm still quite competitive at air hockey, especially with my 13-year-old daughter who beat me once, and then I destroyed her uh, the second time. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, in this, that's beyond the point. The arcade had the classic machine with the claw. You know what I'm talking about? You put the coins in, the claw goes down, you control where it goes, and you try to pull something up, and nothing ever comes up. But I couldn't resist the please and the, the look of love in my youngest daughter's eyes. And so, of course, the coins went in, the claw went down, nothing came up. And I think that's an illustration of how many of us can approach the Bible sometimes 
and how many of us, myself included, can approach the Psalms sometimes. We open it up, we drop our claw in, we try to pull something out, see if it's helpful to us that morning or that particular day. But a better way to read the Bible, a better way to read the Psalms, if I can push my illustration a little bit too far right now, is, is not to drop our claw in and try to pull out a, a fortune cookie, but if we actually get inside the machine itself and we immerse ourselves in the treasure and have access to all the treasure at our fingertips. And so that's why I invite us as a congregation now to begin a journey, a long journey of immersing ourselves in the Psalms. The way we're thinking about approaching this is about 12 Psalms per summer, uh, give or take, depending on the summer, depending on the Psalms. Some of the Psalms are pretty short. Some of the Psalms are pretty long, so they might need a, a few weeks to do justice. But about 12 Psalms per summer. So that means if you stick with us, about 13 or 14 years from now, <laughs> we will have preached through all 150 psalms. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. 13, 14 years from now. You'll remember the day. You'll tell your grandchildren. I was there when Jamie said we were going to start this. I'm doing my math. It's 2023. So in the year 2036 or 2037. Turo will have preached through all 150 psalms. Before we jump into the first psalm that Barney read to us earlier, I want to just give two quick points about why the psalms matter. And the first is because of revelation. We are a people of revelation. And when I use that word, I'm, I'm using it in the fullest, most biblical, theological sense of God's revelation to us of himself in his word. God has revealed himself to his people in his holy scriptures. And in his sovereignty and his wisdom, he has so ordained his book, his revelation, to have at its heart his infallible book of common prayer. That's how we can think of the Psalms. As Anglicans, that might excite some of you. That's kind of what the Psalms are. They're God's book of common prayer, and they're right in the middle of the Bible. By the way, that's why it felt appropriate this morning to preach from the middle, sort of as a nod to the centrality of the Psalms in God's revelation. The Psalms are God's book of common prayer, prayers, poems, wisdom, written by all different sorts of people in different seasons, different times. David, Solomon, Moses, Asaph, the sons of Korah, many anonymous writers, but all inspired by God. And God could have let these psalms fall away. There have been many, many generations of the people of God where the psalms, the songs they sang have fallen away. I'm thinking of Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ on you richly uh, teaching, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Some of those spiritual songs that the New Testament church sang, that Jesus himself sang, we don't have anymore. Uh, we'll, we'll learn them in heaven. But the Psalms we still have today, God has preserved these Psalms for us. And to use the word again, they've been treasured uh, by God's people for centuries. We are a people of revelation. And God reveals himself to us in the Psalms, all 150 of them. In some Psalms, God reveals himself as a strong tower, 
a rock. In other Psalms, God reveals himself as a, as a shelter, a faithful one, very present help in times of trouble. In some Psalms, God reveals himself by being quite easy to see. The psalmist is aware of his presence there in the cave. In other Psalms, God reveals himself by being very difficult to see. Psalmists in some Psalms dance for him, clap for him, sing to him. They're happy. And then other psalmists cry out to him. They weep to God. They're in anguish. So for all of God's people, in all seasons of life, the psalms, all of them are part of God's precious revelation, and we are a people of revelation. The second reason why the psalms matter is because of response. We are a people of response. Augustine said it famously, you have made us for yourself, O God. And our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. He's made us for relationship. He's made us for friendship. God has made us to respond to him. So whoever you are this morning, whatever you're going through in your life, wherever you are with God, it might be encouraging for you to hear this. God not only so earnestly desires to reveal himself to you, but God also earnestly desires to draw you to respond to him because he knows you so well. He created you so intimately. He wove you together in your mother's womb. He knows every word you're going to say. Catch this, before it's even on your tongue. Psalm 139 tells us that. We'll get to that in about 12 years. <laughs> so he knows you, and he so longs not only to reveal himself to you, but to draw you to respond to him. God wants you to have a, a prayer life. God wants you to have a worship life, private. God wants you to have a devotional life. And so God gives you and me the Psalms to help shape that response. And the same is true for the church. God is infinitely more concerned about how the church worships him than any of us are. And so God has given his church the Psalms to shape how the church responds to him. Revelation and response. That's why the Psalms matter. It's about as concise an argument I can make uh, right now at the outset of this series for why the Psalms matter. Let's add a personal reason, though, as well, which is that the Psalms, I'm sure like many of you could testify, have become so important to me in my Christian walk, in my walk with the Lord. I cannot imagine following Jesus, trying to follow him without the Psalms. I keep a little prayer journal on my phone in the notes, and if I could show it to you, you would see over the years, over the years and years and years, uh, just how the Psalms have, have been uh, just life to me. And I find that the more I read them, the more I get familiar with the Psalms, the more they get into me, the more dependent I become on them. You might have discovered this as well with God's Word, with the Psalms. It's amazing how the more you read it, the more you eat that book, the hungrier you become for it. That's my prayer for me and for true, that as we read God's word, as we study the Psalms, as we immerse ourselves in the treasure, we become hungrier and hungrier for it. 
There's one other hope I have, one other prayer I have for us as a church as we immerse ourselves in the Psalms, and it's that we would see Jesus in the Psalms, that we would be pointed to the one to whom the Psalms point. We believe something quite amazing about Jesus, that Jesus did not only pray these Psalms and sing these Psalms, which he did, Jesus also fulfilled these Psalms. If you were in church here a few weeks ago, the Sunday after Ascension, our gospel reading had a, no pun intended, or if you know me, maybe it is intended, our gospel reading had an Easter egg in it, and it was Jesus talking to his disciples just before his ascension. And listen to what Jesus said. This is Luke 24, verses 44 and 45. Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. There isn't a single Psalm that says the name Jesus. And yet Jesus himself said everything written about me. Where? In the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. It's amazing. Jesus said everything written about me, not just in the law of Moses, where you would think it's about Jesus, not just in the prophets, where of course you think Isaiah and they're prophesying about the coming Messiah. He also says, everything written about me in the Psalms must be fulfilled. So we're going to preach these Psalms and immerse ourselves in these Psalms in such a way that points us to the one to whom these Psalms point and points us to the one who fulfilled these Psalms. And there's no better place for us to start than Psalm 1 today. It's a short Psalm. Let's read it together. Open your Bibles and your pews to the middle somewhere. I think it's page... 448. And let's read Psalm 1 out loud, nice and strong, together from your Bibles, or if you'd rather just listen and let the Word of God dwell on you richly. Psalm 1 together. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, let's say this with gusto. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Thank you, God, for the Psalms. Thank you, God, for the Psalms. We've already considered two R's today, uh, revelation and response. So to keep us all tracking, let me give us two more. Two more R's as we look briefly at Psalm 1. And the first R is rootedness. We see this all throughout Psalm 1, rootedness. And Psalm 1 says to us that there are only two kinds of rootedness. One goes down into God himself, and another goes down no deeper than a man himself or a woman herself. A person who's rooted in God on the one hand 
Delighting in the law of the Lord, meaning the word of the Lord, is described in verse 3. You see it as a tree planted by streams of water. It's a fruitful tree. It's a healthy tree. It's a stable tree, a secure tree, a tree that could withstand storms, a tree that's doing what it's made to do. But on the other hand, the other kind of person is the exact opposite of that. They're rooted in themselves, and they're described as chaff, the outside shell of grain or of fruit or something flimsy, disposable, blows away in the wind. So Psalm 1 does not start off the book of Psalms gently and tenderly and quietly. Psalm 1 starts off with a bang right out of the gate. And God's central book of common prayer, the psalmist says to us, and God reveals to us there are two ways to live. Two ways to live. One is to be rooted in God. Another way is to be rooted in wickedness. And when your roots go down deep into God, you have everlasting life. You are an evergreen tree. Your fruit, your leaves do not wither. But when your roots go down into wickedness, the psalmist says, there is indeed, tragically, a withering of your leaves and of your fruit. So we have to have a root system in something other than ourselves. It's a prayer that Psalm 1 wants to cultivate in us. We have to have a root system that goes deeper than our own naturally born wicked selves and we have to have a root system that goes deeper and spreads beyond just being connected to other people whose root systems are also no deeper than their naturally born wicked selves. That's what the psalmist means when he says walking in the counsel of the wicked. Just a bunch of flimsy little toothpicks standing in the sand and they're just connected to one another as a, a little interconnected root of wickedly connected toothpicks. <laughs> We need a, a rootedness in something deeper than ourselves. It reveals our neediness. Psalm 1 reveals our neediness right out of the gate for this kind of rootedness. It gives us life. This rootedness gives us sustenance. This rootedness gives us security for the long haul. And I, as I was reflecting on this, I just, I want to take a moment and apply this in a specific way as a specific prayer for this church Specifically when it comes to how we care for and love our young people. Our little kids in the nursery right now, down on the bottom level of education building. Praise God for them. Our elementary school students down below us in the Undercroft or over in the Gunnel House, Club 56. Our middle school, high school students. The college students. We're on break right now, but during the school year, tens of thousands of college students just at our doorstep. What is our prayer for them? How might God use Truro for the sake of the next generation? It's for rootedness. It's for rootedness that they would be rooted in the word, that they would be rooted in God. Pray for our young people. Pray for them. Pray for the ones you'll see today on the water slides, that God would make them healthy trees. God would plant their roots down deep in his word and in him. This is our heart for our young people, amen? They don't, they don't need to come here to be entertained. They can be entertained better 
anywhere else, even on their phones, they can be entertained to death. Lord, keep this church from wanting to bring young people here to entertain them. Give this church a heart for our young people that they would be rooted in God, rooted in the word, rooted in Christ, so that as they grow up and as they face crises at home or at school or at work, and as they go to college and sit through their first sociology lecture, they don't deconstruct on the first day. We want our kids to be rooted. God and God alone gives us in this room and our young people rootedness. That's the first R, rootedness. The second R is righteousness. Psalmist paints a pretty clear picture for us here in uh, Psalm 1. And in essence, what he says is this, show me your root system and I'll show you where your righteousness comes from. It's interesting. Rootedness and righteousness are connected. They're not two separate things. One flows from the other. Roots in God, righteousness from God. That's what we see. Roots in God, righteousness from God. Roots in anything else, no righteousness at all. Verses four through six, the wicked are not so. Not like what? Not like the righteous. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, they will not stand in the judgment. We should have tears in our eyes when we read these verses. Nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. There is no righteousness, no standing before God apart from a righteousness that comes from God. Verse six, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So let me ask you, where are your roots? Where's your root system? Show me your root system and I'll show you where your righteousness comes from. Are your roots in your education, your resume, your family lineage? None of those things are bad but none of those things can save you. None of those things can give you standing before God. Are your roots in your kids or in your grandkids or in a kingdom of your own creation? Again, none of those things bad, but none of those things can save you. None of those things can make you like a tree planted by the water. You will fall over the second a storm comes. Are your roots in what you listen to, or in what you read, or in what you watch? Have you constructed a root system that is watered daily by MSNBC? Have you constructed a root system that's watered daily or hourly by Fox News? You may not realize it, you may not have meant to do it, but we run the risk, myself included, of building a particular root system in a particular podcast or a particular news source or a particular echo chamber. And then we're looking to that particular root system for our particular righteousness 
And Psalm 1 ought to this morning create a cry in our hearts of, Lord, have mercy on me. If I have created a root system that seeks to draw life from anything other than your living water. That's a cry of the psalmist. Lord, have mercy on us. Help us. It doesn't matter how smart, how wealthy, how well-connected, how woke, how unwoke, how Anglican you are. It doesn't matter. You cannot rely on any other root system to give you a righteousness before God. Again, hear me. Hear the Bible. Only a righteousness from God can give you righteousness before God. This is God's revelation to us in Psalm 1, and it calls for a response. And the response may very well be this. Oh, God, give me a rootedness in you and you alone. God, uproot any system I have sought to lay in anything other than you. And this is how Psalm 1 should point us to Jesus. And this is how Psalm 1 should make us so very glad to know and believe in the gospel because what does Jesus promise to all those who are in him? Rootedness and righteousness. Hear Jesus say this in John 15, 4. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Jesus himself is our root system. So don't, don't hear Psalm 1 this morning as some kind of guilt trip. Do more, try harder. Go home today and do your devotionals more regularly. Work harder reading the Bible. You need to do this. You need to do that. You, 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 you. If you hear me saying that, that's the exact opposite of what I'm saying. Here's Psalm 1 through the filter of the gospel as an invitation to abide in Christ as your root system. That's real rootedness. And here's real righteousness. In Christ, we are justified, sanctified, crucified, risen, made righteous in Christ. Praise God. We heard this earlier. Mike read it to us from John chapter 10. Jesus said, I am the door of the sheep. He puts it all on him. If anyone enters, where? By me, he will be saved. That's it. Jesus is our righteousness, our salvation, our door. Jesus was hung on a tree of death in order that we might become like trees of life. And whoever the psalmist was who wrote Psalm 1, we don't know who it was. Whoever the anonymous psalmist was who wrote Psalm 1 was pointing ahead to the one who would not only fulfill this psalm, but would make it possible in us. So, that's why I invite us as a congregation to immerse ourselves in God's word, deep into the Psalms. 
this summer and for a lot of summers to come so that the very first word of this psalm, you might have seen it, the very first word of the first verse of the first psalm might be true of us. What's that word? Blessed. We would be a blessed church. The men in this room, you'd be blessed men. Women in this room, you'd be blessed women. Our young people would be blessed, but not blessed in ourselves, not blessed from ourselves or whatever root system we've sought to lay, but blessed and rooted and righteous in Christ. Amen? Love for us to pray together. So why don't we stand as we pray, if you're able. Oh God, we thank you for your precious revelation. Thank you for the book of Psalms. And Lord, I pray that you would fulfill this psalm in this church and in our hearts. Plant us deep down in you. Lord, we thank you. It's your kindness that leads to repentance. And so we do, Lord, pray now you would uproot whatever root systems we've laid and whatever soil is not you. Help us, Lord. Oh God, we, we thank you. We praise you. We ask you to plant us deep down in you. And we do pray for our young people, Lord, that you would draw them here. We pray that you would entrust them to us and that we would draw them not to entertainment, but to Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Amen.